Hello, Damon. Jeremy, hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. Good. I want to get right into it. Cover story and secret garden. Do those words mean anything to you? Hmm. Not in particular. Okay. I want to tell you what they mean to me, and then I want to hear how you respond. So to me, a cover story is this phrase my wife Chrissy and I came up with, which is just like, how do you explain yourself to other people? So this happens all the time. They're like, what do you do? Even if it's at a potluck, when we used to have potlucks in the world. (laughs) And your cover story is like, just your answer. It's short. It's like, I'm a writer. And then someone says, what do you write? And I'm like, nonfiction, true stories, like for magazines. And I have three books. And I say, my books are. And they're like, okay. So you have a cover story. What's your cover story? Now I've explained the term. I always feel a, a bit of anxiety around this particular type of question because I don't know if I have a cover story. I mean, here's what I could tell you right now. I'm, I'm a high-performance coach. I work with people who are going after high-level achievements, but I'm also somebody that works with adolescents who are trying to navigate the choppy waters of being 18 years old. So I'm kind of one of those people that breaks the mold a little bit on the cover story. Where do I live? Well, right now I live in Michigan, but last year I traveled around the whole world. So I have some sweat on the the upper lip right now, just with the question itself. Well, that's good because cover stories bear examination. And first of all, when you don't have one or when you're not sure what yours is, it is anxiety producing. Like I can say I'm a writer and It's less, what am I writing and more, what have I written? Because people want to know, like, are you really a writer? What does that mean? (laughs) Can I look (laughs) you up on Amazon? Can I listen to your podcast? Hmm. If so, then they're just sort of immediately satisfied and they go away. But like Chrissy had this amazing 10-year span where she founded a local nonprofit that became a statewide nonprofit that became a national nonprofit and like more than half the states in the country. And she went to the White House and she did all these amazing things. And she took a year off and she was trying to figure out what to do next. And the year off was awesome, but she did not have a cover story. And there was a sort of nakedness in the garden to not having a cover story. Not having the cover story was psychologically grueling. And now she has an amazingly great cover story again. She is the executive director of a shelter for young mothers and their children who are homeless and a licensed mental health center and job placement and educational support. And that is amazing. I mean, people often say, wow, that must be so hard, but at least they're not saying, oh, that's dumb or I have no idea what you're talking about. They esteem it. But that doesn't mean the day-to-day is always so rosy. So I think we have this need for a cover story. And at the same time, we should realize that people will accept almost anything and our sort of internal struggle to define it or get it exactly right isn't fitting the lock that we're set with. We just have to have something that we can kind of parry with conversationally for a little bit. And uh, I don't know, does that kind of cover story cover for you? I mean, it really does. I've noticed the same thing with my wife. She had a very top level job that was just this rock star cover story. And we opted, as I mentioned, to travel around the world last year. And so she quit her job and we were 
literally just gypsies. I still had my work because I have access to doing that digitally, but suddenly she was just a mom and, and a traveler. And I noticed the anxiety with her when we would run into people where she would start by telling her old cover story. And then it would dawn on her that that's no longer her story. And so it was fairly awkward with these people that we would just be meeting somewhere in the world. And as I mentioned, my cover story has always felt like watercolors. It's always felt blurry. And I can see the moment that somebody is tuning out, that I'm three or four sentences in to the nuance of what I do, and they are checked out. At the same time, you know, maybe they're checking out because you've actually satisfied them. You're feeding them more than they needed. They just kind of were smelling your cover story behind. And, you know, you gave them enough to be like, okay, this guy's someone I can have a hot dog with in an adjacent lawn chair. I don't need to know your whole deal, dude. <laughs> so there's that. And at the same time, there's whole cultures that are almost entirely cover story, arguably like the startup class and Silicon Valley, where your sort of pitch, your TED talk is who you are. And you've got to have this sort of self that people can express and register and connect with and invest in to succeed. And that can seem like a cover story squirt gun fight where people are just just trying to soak as much as possible and hit as much as they can and, and build up from there. And there's, of course, a, a potential hollowness to that. Or if you've seen that in the groups you've advised. Absolutely. Yeah. Not just a potential hollowness there. I think that there is maybe a, another word to use would just be incompleteness. Because we are all living our lives with several avatars that are happening all at the same time. You know, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a small business owner. I'm a friend, I'm an athlete, amateur photographer, you know, you name it. But if you just sort of have the image of this wheel of all these different types of personas, to me, that's the spice of life. And it doesn't fit nicely within the model of having a cover story. Yeah, cover stories don't have the why in them. They don't have the meaning. And that doesn't mean you don't have meaning in what you do. It just isn't part of that package for whatever reason. And maybe we can unpack that a little bit later. But I wanted to go to this other concept that I call secret garden. And mm -hmm. secret garden is this internally satisfying thing that you do. It's this thing you cultivate for yourself or for itself in and of itself and that you don't have to share it or show it to anyone and you don't have to get anything out of it just doing it or being with it is its own reward. So I was thinking about some example secret gardens for me. So a few that I think I'd put in this category are following the NBA and playing pickup basketball, hmm. going to my yoga class and going to my meditation group, slacklining, river surfing, stand-up paddleboarding, whatever book I'm reading at the moment, is a sort of secret garden usually. And there are whole topics I might go into, multiple books or multiple internet deep dives that are secret gardens. My friendships are a classic secret garden to me, especially those that have regular rituals 
that I do are regular gatherings. My relationship with Chrissy is definitely a secret garden. And there's new stuff I've gotten into lately. Birding, stargazing, botany, and geology. Maybe that kind of goes into the book, deep dive stuff, some of that. But those are some of my secret gardens. So does that make sense to you? And what comes to mind for you, if so, in that category? I mean, it does make sense. And it's interesting to to think about it through more of a, a psychological lens. I think what most of us are aspiring for, and I've done a deep dive study into the state called flow. And flow is a, a state of consciousness where we perform our best, we feel our best. It's the only time when this cascade of neurochemicals in our brain all release at the same time. It is quite simply a, a sublime state to be in. And the thing about flow is that it's autotelic in nature, meaning that we do it just for the sake of doing it. And so what resonates about your secret garden story here is that all of these different things like river surfing, you're not river surfing because you want to go compete in a river surfing competition or plaster some pictures on your Instagram because you look cool doing it. You're doing it because you love to do it. And underneath that autotelic word are a few traits that stand out. One is persistence. Another one is curiosity. Another one is having kind of a low sense of, of ego. A fourth is doing this in some sort of collaboration. Could be even just a collaboration with yourself. But it does a couple of things. It regulates the nervous system because we feel calm. We feel inspired. We have that wide-eyed sense about us when we're doing this. And it's kind of the anti-cover story, right? I mean, it's not just this, what do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. This opens up this magic box and you're not in the productivity world any longer. You're in the exploration world. So for me, I, I definitely have these as well. I'd throw kayaking pretty high on the list for me in terms of secret garden. I would throw yoga on the list as well. I'm a secret garden breather. I am a nerd about different types of breath techniques and whenever I'm feeling swirly, whenever I'm feeling like that cover story kind of hang up, I choose to pivot towards something more in the secret garden category. My own breathing just slowed in just a wonderful way. And my gaze lifted and I saw clouds parting just when you said the word breathing. It's mm. a really good prompt. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine what actually breathing would do. <laughs> Well, you know, your brain doesn't know the difference between something you do and something you visualize. So perhaps there is some value in just thinking about breathing. So there's doing and then there's being. And I think Secret Garden, those lines don't exist in the same way that they do in cover story. So like looking at a cloud and surfing don't feel that different. I'm just sort of being with what's out there and being with myself. And it's sort of happy and unpressured. You know, for me, cooking is another example. Me too. I love that it's almost the opposite of writing. It's in real time. And at the end, it just goes away. <laughs> <laughs> and the sort of unpreciousness of that, even though it can be immaculate and perfect, it's just so obviously of the moment. 
There's no one who's like, oh, I really want to bronze this bread or meatloaf or you know penne. Um, it's kind of beautiful to me. Yeah, me too. It's a cool concept. Like I said, I just use the word pivot. When you can pivot towards just being for our audience to think about, you know, what's on your to-do list for tomorrow? And typically, these are action steps, things that need to be accomplished. You know, I've got to wash the car. I've got to mow the lawn. I've got to take my daughter to yoga or recital. They're just things to do. They're things to kind of check off your list. Whereas I like to live and, and what I'm really leaning towards more is creating a to-be list. And so I want to ask you a question as well. When you enter into one of these secret garden activities, like birding, for example, yeah. do you enter into that activity with a certain type of mindset or do you enter into that activity in a certain way that you appreciate or enjoy about yourself? Or does the mere act of birding transform you as you're doing it? Well, it's funny. I think I do enter into that with a certain mindset, but I don't think it's in the way you mean. I think you mean like with an intention. But I actually feel like I'm often running into these things as an escape from my <laughs> cover story mindset. And I'm kind of stressed or harried or I've been playing email triage or thinking about work or reading the news or any other sort of stressor or what have I not done? What have I not accomplished? Where am I behind? And I go into this activity and it is consuming to the point that I can't think about these other things or I stop thinking about it or I'm just amused or entertained or relaxed. And I just sort of chill out, even if it's intense, like surfing, you know, can be very intense, especially river surfing, you know, you're swimming up river or you're standing up surfing. So those are not look at the clouds activities, but they feel exactly the same. And the thing is, when I get into the birding, I'm kind of going at the bird's pace, maybe. And when I'm going at the river, I'm going at the river's pace. Or I'm playing pickup basketball, I'm going at the game's pace. And I wonder if that's part of it. It's about not being in control. You know, it's just going into the rhythm of the game or whatever you want to call it or the moment. Hmm. I don't know if that if that answers your question or, or raises a new one. It's fascinating and interesting. And it, it reminds me of that improv game of yes and where you're not dictating the state of the circumstances that are happening, you're just kind of riding the moment. You know, when the birds fly into the trees and then they fly away, there's nothing you can do about that. You're in a, like you said, kind of a lack of control relationship. And that word is so fascinating. I mean, in my field, the word control, the ramification of that word is positive. You know, it's important to stay in control of what you can control is a way that would sort of be framed. And I get it, and I, I believe in that on some level, but when you frame it that way, I think that the, the impulse then is to kind of get back into that cover story box. And even the way I was framing the to be list, like I'm going to be calm going into this situation that I'm about to go into, because that's what I want to be. You are sort of detaching yourself from the ability for something magical to happen because you've sort of pre-scripted how you want it to go. So I think there's a fine line there. I do believe in my space, in the kind of performance psychology space, that 
being in control is a good thing for certain things. But at the same time, I'm starting to come around on the fact that maybe it's just about being 100% present. And by being present, if you're river surfing, your senses are heightened and you're taking in the surroundings and you're being an active listener and you're being an active participant in the dance with the relationship that you have with whatever life is giving you in that moment. And there's something inherently confident about that and trusting. So I want to personally enter into more situations like that, where I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to say, how I'm going to frame myself, how I'm going to act or perform, but that I'm just drawn into whatever situation that, that I'm, I'm being pulled into and play a little more yes and in my life. I think something that these things also have is an ongoing narrative. And maybe that sounds funny, but I just mean there's a story that keeps them interesting and keeps them arresting and keeps them surprising. You know, it's never the same basketball game exactly twice. It is adaptive. You know, I learn, I practice something new, I figure something out, but then they adapt to that adaptation. Obviously, a river, you know, it's a cliche, is never the same river twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, books, I'm reading topics, I'm learning. As I learn more, it kind of changes who I am as the reader. And of course, with each page, I'm getting new information. And that's true of our relationships, too. You know, they're not static. And I think that's, you know, exciting. And that's what you want in any relationship, whether it's a relationship with another person, with a topic, with a sport. That's just sort of something I feel like I'm getting from these secret gardens. I think you're stumbling on something a little bit deeper by framing it that way as well. When I'm thinking about this cover story idea, it's static. It's a label that isn't moving. And there's nothing more anti-living or anti-human than things that are just static. Like right now, blood's pumping through my body, oxygen through my lungs, we're constantly changing second by second. This planet is spinning hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. You know, there's movement is the only constant. And we use language to kind of create a meaning and make meaning. I'm staring at an oak tree out my window right now. And it's widely agreed upon what type of oak tree this is, the genus, the phylum, the species, etc. And we say, see, see, I'm smart because I know that that oak tree is this type of tree. And yep, everybody agrees. And we've all put thumbs up. Yep, that's right. That's that kind of oak tree. But by doing that, I think we cheat ourselves from the simple observations of consistent change. And within that change is more along the lines of that secret garden. And again, maybe through the psychological framework of flow, one thing that I think is important, though, is to not overshoot what it is that you're attempting, meaning that it's important to have your skill level be slightly below the challenge that you're going after. So with a secret garden, yeah, do you feel like you should choose them? <laughs> Or should they choose you? And is there a risk in having so many 
that you're kind of spread thin or that it's at the expense of whatever your core activity is supposed to be and you become a, a dilettante in the negative sense? I mean, I think that there has to be some type of routine in your life where you create a little bit of space. I always use the imagery of those snow globes that you shake and you know you shake that thing up as a blizzard inside and then if you set it down and you leave it alone all that snow just falls to the bottom and then you see clearly that there's the golden gate bridge inside or the statue of liberty or whatever you bought your snow globe and i think that for us to be able to have a sense of what secret gardens we want to frolic in we need to set our own snow globes down every once in a while and in within that practice I think we get a deeper sense of what's happening intuitively inside us. And then we are pulled or we're drawn towards birding or uh, river surfing or kayaking or whatever it is. But if it's a top-down approach where I say sort of in the front part of my brain, I want to be a kayaker, you know, maybe I'm open up REI and I see this cool picture of this dude who's kayaking. I'm like, wow, that looks cool. All right, I want to be a kayaker and then I want to go get the gear. And then now I've got all the gear. Now I'm really going to put the boat in the water and, and I'm going to go for it. Is that the right approach? It, it almost feels like a cover story as an activity as opposed to a secret garden. And those types of people typically, before they even set foot in the kayak, they ask their friends to take a picture of them in a really, you know, rip and pose. And post that picture on Instagram before they've even endeavored in the activity. And I think that's something in our society now that has become a challenge. It's, it's become a challenge. It's who we seem to be through the images that we portray on social media, through these small conversations, you know, as you mentioned, Silicon Valley and these cover stories. The secret gardens are secret for a reason. They're secret because they were drawn from the recesses of some place deeper inside of ourselves. And we get lost in the activity. So lost that time flies and we sort of lose that inner critic in our own heads. And we're just sort of marveling at whatever the thing is that we're doing for its own sake, which is back to that autotelic word. So I don't think we manufacture our secret gardens. I think we start tinkering quietly to find those that will really resonate with us. At the same time, I think if someone is pulled to something, it's a bigger risk to make excuses and resist where you want to go and something you want to try and say, oh, I'm just a poser. I saw this picture in a catalog. Then to pick up too many things or pick them up for the wrong reasons. It's like, try it, go for it, dive in, and then start judging if you have to. If you're like, oh, am I doing this for the right reasons? If you're doing it, just go do it and just go have fun. And I think that that resistance to following it, because it maybe doesn't fit a cover story, is a bigger risk than, than getting spread too thin. At the same time, you're totally right. Now with social media, we have our social lives. We have to have cover stories for those too. And that can just be so consuming and so draining, especially when you have to consume along the way so many other people's cover stories. 
And it's just like the Secret Garden stories. Something I've been thinking about is, you know, the stories we follow, follow us. So if you're following people, you kind of want to find out what happens next, even if it's making you unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're following a tree or a plant or a body of water or a bird or a book, you'll want to find out what happens next. So I think that choice is to sort of pay attention to how it's making you feel and follow that good feeling. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the things that I think kind of trips people up sometimes around following that pull and then just doing it is that kind of back to the the thought I had about us being a bunch of different avatars, our identity. As a young guy, I was a a very uh, successful, highly ranked tennis player. And that part of my personality or that part of myself is what I would judge everything else by. So math was not my strong suit. And, and it certainly wasn't anywhere near the level that my tennis game was, but I feel like I sort of cheated myself out of was that the exploration of learning how to take one more step, learning a little bit more about and being fascinated with math, as opposed to saying, oh, I have this high watermark around what I think success looks like because of tennis this is nowhere close to it. So I'm moving away from that. And it's taken me a long time in my life to let go of that as sort of a restriction and say, wow, this is liberating because I kind of suck at this. And, mm-hmm. and it's fun. It's fun. It doesn't have to be something where I view it through that competitive lens. So I really jive with that as, as a concept. And then in terms of the social media and kind of framing who we are as people, I mean, the liberation of if I'm pulled to kayak, you're right, just have the experience. And really at the end of the day, I feel like this kind of touches on a deeper philosophical question about what does it mean to be productive? What does it mean to feel fulfilled, to have a word that I think a lot about now is awe. I want to be awe. I want to be awestruck, awe-inspired. When I study the stars and I'm looking at the constellations, I'm not really thinking about the constellations in terms of what humans have discovered. This is my time to kind of wonder, what is it like out in space? And just how vast space is and how the fact that we are one of these, you know, there's nothing tethering the earth up to anything. We're just floating through space. And, And when I really to meditate on that concept in real time, it changes my nervous system and then it opens me up. I can feel my blood pressure going down and my eyes getting wider. And I think the physiological byproduct of experiencing awe is unbelievable. And so learning new things can be awe-inspiring and they can be terrifying as well, but that also keeps your eyes wide open. So I think trying to shift maybe on the macro scale from productivity, bottom line, progress to more just deeply autotelic experiences, experiences for their own sake would be a really nice shift. I think society would work better if more people were drawn to their secret gardens and their cover. You know, you mentioned sucking at something. And there's a great book by a former editor of mine, Karen Rinaldi, 
and the book is called Suck at Something. And <laughs> it's sort of her admonition to do something for a lot of these reasons. For her, it's surfing. Uh, but she offers a host of other examples and sort of a, even a framework for finding something to, to suck at. So I think that's pretty funny. To add to that, the Navy SEALs, their mantra is embrace the suck. So it's not just suck at something, it's embrace sucking at something or embrace when things are uncomfortable, embrace when it doesn't feel good, embrace when it, you're taking that first new step doing something or the thousandth step because you're just exhausted. So two different types of worldview there, but I find that interesting that there's something liberating and empowering about adding the word suck to your, to your own personal philosophy. Yeah, there's, there's lots of bestsellers about not giving a fuck, but right. there should be more about sucking. Yeah. I guess I want to close with a dangerous question. Mm. And it's, can you, should you make your cover story your secret garden? Or can you make one of your secret gardens your cover story? Can you live the dream? And I know, you know, my cover story is a lot of people's secret gardens. There's lots of people that love writing or want to be a writer and they work on it in their sort of spare time or free time or privately, or they do National Novel Writing Month, or they're writing poems, or they're sending out pieces. And I know it's tricky when it's your job and you're trying to get paid for it and trying to make a living and all of a sudden you're competing and stuff. But at the same time, I, I try to respect the fact, gosh, I am living my and other people's dreams. So I want to have a a secret garden aspect to that that I can cultivate on a daily basis. And kind of whatever I do on a daily basis, I want to be able to have a secret garden aspect that I cultivate because I do it every day, right? It would be so mm -hmm. sad to just have joy that you kind of water every once in a while when you remember or can take a break. But the sort of drudge and the sludge and the trudge, one of those is the right word, <laughs> is you know kind of what you're trapped in nine to five. So what do you think about the anxiety of not having a cover story and how that is real? And it's not just something we can shrug off and say, go with the flow, but also the risk, the adventure, but maybe not advisable to make your secret garden your cover story. I agree. It's kind of a dangerous question. For lack of a more nuanced answer, I would say it's personal. You know, everyone's got to march to their own beat and be drawn by what it is that pulls them. I will say that it does feel like that we are in a time right now where a lot of that is cracking open. Even cover stories are cracking open with the current state of our society where we're kind of milling about in, in a pandemic. You know, you're, we're on Zoom calls with clients and then a baby will crawl through the door or a cat jumps up onto the desk. I think collectively the cover stories are being kind of broken up. And so what I think right now is, is one of those times if people have been flirting with you know, taking some steps towards manifesting their secret gardens, this is a really good time to do a little more exploration in that direction. But to your point about being a writer where a lot of people feel like that's their secret gardens, I mean, you know that it is also a job and that you have to, you have to do the work. You have to do the push-ups. 
to me the kind of the secret sauce where the where these things you know potentially move in the same direction is when the push-ups feel like that sense of autotelic lifestyle where by doing the work the work itself you're doing for its own sake even though it's your job even though there is something you want to get out of it that shifting that attention back to the moment and whether it be writing poetry or developing a pitch for your editor we need to crack open the cover story in our own brains even the word work i mean if, if you say that word it just sounds static it just sounds hard work right <laughs> i think for us to to be able to play around with language a little bit more so that even if it's the activity hasn't changed the way we frame our approach to the activity needs to be altered and potentially we can bring some of the wide-eyed spirit of the secret garden to the areas of our lives that, that seem seemingly to be more serious in nature. And I think that maybe within that, there's, there's a hint of a formula for how one would go about doing that. I want to give a shout out to my friend Jason, who had the best cover story I have heard. He was a city councilor for close to a decade here. He's doing a bunch of high-end computer work. He just got super burnt out on both. He traveled a bunch. He radically changed his kind of diet and exercise. And he came back and I saw him at a potluck. And someone said, oh, Jason, you're back in town. What are you doing these days? And he said, I'm trying to live a low-stress lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just, it was funny because I don't know what people did with that. Because it was like a legitimate challenge. And it was something that was clearly, you know, healthy and that we sort of extol while doing all sorts of things that make that really hard. So it didn't feel lazy and it was clearly had so much intention in it. And it was funny, you know, there were actually very few follow-up questions. People were like, well, what does that mean? They weren't that querulous. They had kind of, it really turned it inward to them. Mm. Maybe no surprise. He has a master's in philosophy. But, you know, we kind of all made us introspective. Be like, what am I trying to live? (laughs) Uh, What lifestyle am I trying to live? How does that work? And, you know, I'm sure he has his own issues and his own angst. But that was kind of new spin on a cover story that I thought worth sharing. I like that. And and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about the 2B list. I mean, there are some days when I wake up in the morning and I say, today, no matter what, no matter what happens around me, I'm going to engage in whatever that situation is in a calm, alert manner. That's it. And when you set that intention, then you have more of an internal focus of control. And maybe that's the type of control that I really value is that sense that Jason wants to live a low-stress lifestyle. I imagine him in the morning when he wakes up, he says, no matter what stressful things are happening around me, I'm going to engage in that in a low-stress manner. That doesn't mean he's not going to try or that sometimes there aren't going to be things that add tension. But, but I do think there is something to this concept of setting an intention to set your nervous system up for success. You know, The bottom line is, is that if we start with how our nervous system is 
functioning and the gate in the gauge that we that we operate from being more in that alert and calm state where our nervous system isn't just getting hijacked and going into fight flight freeze all of a sudden the world opens up and some of those cover story type of mundane tasks might might feel a little more magical yes your mindset can be your secret garden your intentions can be your secret garden. So whatever you're doing is whatever you're doing, cover story or call it what you will, Mm -hmm. how you're doing it. I want to be happy today can be your secret garden. I want to make someone else happy today can be your secret garden. I want to take 10 deep breaths every time I get tense. And that means noticing every time I get tense. That can be your secret garden. It makes it a game and it makes it a growth opportunity and it makes it this pleasure. And it's like, oh, I just should do this normal nine to five or stuff that's well-esteemed and that I enjoy, but I have this secret garden at the same time that no one else knows and no one else is measuring but me. I think that's beautiful. and That's a totally other way to frame it. It may be the highest level of all. Love it. Love it. Mine is to try to maintain a sense of optimism. And when I do that, I find that I think that something good is just around the corner. Something good's just going to happen. And I become more flexible, more versatile, more nimble, more vulnerable. And it is like I have my own little secret. And it's not fake. You know, that's the other part. It's not walking around with a smile on my face. It's just sort of approaching everyday situations with that, seeing it through a more optimistic lens. Mm. Feel like for me, I'll steal you know one of yours that maybe is so embedded in you that you don't even have to name it, but the sort of breathing and know I'm breathing, and being wherever I am and knowing that I am wherever I am. I'm not trying to get through or to somewhere else. I think that's that I'll I'll, I'll pick at least for our ending. Uh, how would you like to wrap up? Well, I think it's important for people to think about this concept on their own, but also to express maybe some of the secret gardens that they have been exploring within with some people around them. I think when you voice some ideas that seem to be daunting within yourself to other people, that can activate them in a way that doesn't necessarily take the secret away, but that it adds a little bit of magic fairy dust to them. So go out there and share a little bit more about your secret garden people and drop the cover story for a bit. Hmm. Beautiful. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Jeremy. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy N. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. Please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts, best ways of being human and being alive. <laughs>